just a few weeks ago called the God Questions. And we've been asking some big questions. And by the way, the questions only get bigger as we move forward, okay? And uh, we're going to be asking a big God question today. Now, before I do that, let me, before I get into that one big question, let me remind you what we're doing during this series. We're not only asking some of the big questions that if you've ever breathed, you've asked these questions about God. We're also taking any other questions that you might have, okay? So in the very back of our auditorium, we've got some little, little buckets and in the very front of every seat, we've got a little index card and those pins, and we're inviting you, if you have some God questions, to fill them out on the index card and drop them back there in those buckets. Now, people have already submitted more than 30 questions. Each Sunday while I'm preaching a message, I'm trying to grab three of them, but of course, if you do the math, and we keep adding every Sunday, uh, there's no way I can address all of them in the series, so at the very end of the series, I'm going to address them all one time, at one time. And we're going to send them out in mass electronically. So that's kind of a plug also that if you get our e-newsletter, if you don't get our e-newsletter that comes out on Thursdays, it means you haven't gone to our website and subscribed for it, okay? Go to our website, subscribe to our e-newsletter. The very end of the series, I'm going to address every question. Yes, even that question that was only one word, mosquitoes? Question mark, right? <laughs> I'm going to address every question that has been asked and dropped in the bucket. As a matter of fact, I told you I'm going to do three during this message today. Before I dive into this big God question, I thought I'd throw out one of the questions, all right? So somebody dropped this on an index card, and this was one of our own questions that somebody asked. They said this way, if everyone has questions, why aren't there enough answers? If God is real, then why can't we feel, see, and just know that he's there. You know, I, I got that question, I started thinking about all the years that I've spent going to school, which is a lot. And I bet there's several of you here that could say it feels like the greater part of your life. You thought school was never going to end. You remember that? You thought you're going to be in school all of your life. And the truth of the matter was, I studied in one field. And the, the longer I went to school, I got more specific in one field. But the truth of the matter is, think about this, this person who asked that question. Can we just leave it up there? This person who asked that question, they made me think about how big the universe is and how many questions, they said, if, if everyone has questions. Now, I know we're talking about the God questions, but the truth of the matter is the world is filled with questions. And we are, God made us in such a way as we are learning people. He made us different than the plants and the trees. He made us different than the animals. He made us to learn, and therefore we have questions. You know, so the person that asked that question, if everyone has questions, that's, you know, they're right on the money. Everyone does, has, does have questions, and they not only have God questions, they've got questions about science, they've got questions about history, they've got questions about music and art, they've got questions upon questions. And so one of the things that I would say right out of the gate that this person is talking about with God is, isn't our God a big God? <laughs> isn't it awesome to know that our God is so big that he's created such a phenomenal cosmic universe that today and tomorrow and 20 years from now, we'll still be learning? We are still, scientists are still learning. Mathematicians are still learning. Musicians, believe it or not, are still learning. And God has built this incredible, incredible universe, so it would be a learning universe. Now, the question is, if God is real, then why can't we feel, see, and just know that he's there? And of course, what God has required of us is this thing called faith. So let me remind you of what I told you that very first Sunday when we started this series. 
we believe in, in something called faith. Now, Hebrews defines faith as that which is, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Now, a lot of people, when we talk about faith, they think we're talking about just blind faith, you know? Oh, you believe in God, it's just blind faith. You just got to trust that God's there. The truth of the matter is, God has said, yes, I am not going to show you, I'm not going to let you see me, I'm not going to just show up and say, I'm here, now you can believe, I'm going to require faith of you. But God requires an informed faith, an informed faith. He doesn't say just, all you have to do is have blind faith. He wants to reveal himself. He's done that through coming to earth for us. He's coming, he's, he does that through giving us the Bible. The Bible says in Psalm 91, he did it through the creation by just putting the world at play around us. Did you know that even your questions are a reminder that God is there, the all-knowing, all-sufficient God is there? So why does God require faith? I, I can't explain that exactly, but I do know this. He's a very smart, very planned God. And he has given us an ability to have an informed faith. As a matter of fact, that's what we're going to do today. Today, and I'm not trying to, trying to jump ahead myself, but today we're going to take a world tour. We're going to look at the world religions of, uh, that have gone on long, long, long before us. We're going to look at 98% of all that people have ever believed on this planet. And it's, at the end of the day, going to be to address a question that question is, do all roads lead to heaven? I mean, don't all the religions end up to the same place? And how does this all work out? And what is heaven like? And how do you get to heaven? And how do you, how do you get to know God? We're going to tour all over the world to study all those different religions. And it's in the process of having an informed faith. So I want you to really put on your thinking cap with me today. You're going to learn something new. And if you've never picked up a pen before here at Harvest Point and taken notes when we're, when we're in worship, today might be your best day, okay? So I'd invite you to grab a pen and grab that outline together, and we're going to take a, a world tour. Now, before we do that, I just want to begin with Scripture, because that's where I always begin. And I want to read to you a Scripture that Jesus shared right before he left the planet. Now, if you remember the story, Jesus called all of his disciples together. They met in an upper room. They had a big meal. You've seen that picture, right? They had what they call the Last Supper. And he began to tell them about what was going to happen. He began to tell them that he was going to suffer, that he was going to die, and that he would be crucified. They did not want to hear this naturally. But then he began to wash their feet, and he began to explain even more. Look at that opening scripture for the day that's found in John chapter 14, verse 6. Jesus said these words, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, why would Jesus say such a thing? Well, naturally, he wanted them to understand that once he was gone, that there would be a way for people to make it to the Father, that he wasn't leaving them alone and without a way to get to God, but he was showing them the way to the God, and it was through him. But let me say it one more time, what Jesus said there right before he left the planet. He said these words, and they're kind of sobering words. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, the question of the day is, did Jesus really mean that? I mean, seriously, did he really mean those words, and are they true? You know, if you, if you take it as it is, it sounds like Jesus is saying, he 
is the only way. Through Him is the only way to get to heaven. Through Him is the only way to get to the Father, to God. And it sounds like that's exactly what he's saying. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, you would have to, once you hear those words, you'd have to ask yourself a couple of questions. Come on, Jesus. <laughs> Sounds kind of narrow. Isn't that narrow? That's, I think that's one of the first questions you probably would ask. And another question that you might also ask is, isn't that kind of arrogant, Jesus? I mean, is that a little egotistical? Do you really mean that, that, that only by you, only by you can people get to heaven? No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, this wasn't the first time that Jesus had said something like that. As a matter of fact, in the greatest sermon ever recorded, that sermon we call the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through chapter 7, Jesus said something kind of close to it then. And that was pretty much at the very beginning of his ministry. Look at that scripture with me. Matthew chapter 7, Jesus said this, and it sounds pretty close. Jesus said, enter through the narrow gate. You might want to underline that. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, underline that, and narrow the road, you might want to underline that, narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. See, those words sound very close, don't they? It seems kind of narrow, Jesus. Do you really mean that? And you know, if you even push a little bit further, it's very clear that Jesus' followers understood that that's exactly what Jesus meant. Whether we think it's narrow or egotistical or arrogant or not, his followers understood that he was saying that exactly, that it was only through him. Because in Acts 4, look at what Peter said at the very first big sermon where thousands of people became Christ followers. Peter said it this way, salvation is found in, look at those three words, no one else. For there is no other name, another three words, no other name under heaven given to mankind or given to humanity by which we must be saved. Wow! If, if, even if you don't necessarily know what you believe yet, that's bold. Don't you agree? It's very bold. Um, it is potentially offensive. And for sure, it is politically incorrect, you know, to say that only under one name and only through Jesus can you gain access to heaven. And so what we're going to do today is, here's my grand goal. My grand goal is to help you answer that question for yourself. Is Jesus the only way, or do all the roads lead to Rome? Do all the roads lead to heaven? And what does that look like, all those different religions? We're going to take a world tour. We're going to look at 98% of all the world religions, and, and we're going to look at all the different options. And here's what we're going to ask. And it's kind of simple. Is Jesus the way? Or is Muhammad the way? Or is Buddha the way? Or Letzal? Or Confucius? Who? What is the way to God? What is the way to heaven? And is it all the same thing? How about Allah? Is Allah the way? We're going to ask those questions together today. All right, you see your outline there? We're going to start off with that big graph. Let me tell you about that big colorful graph. I'm going to put it up here on the screen. That big colorful graph, let me, let me kind of tell you what you're looking at real quickly. There's a wonderful website called adherence.com. You might want to write that down somewhere. Adherence.com is a website that I found that literally, it's not a religious website, it's a sociologist website. 
And sociologists have studied all the world religions that are anywhere above 10,000. Now, they can't study everything that's below that. So they studied all the world religions that are above 10,000 adherents, and they put them on a list, and they've told us exactly who they are, where they are, and what they believe. And this graph was basically a graph that, that you could pull from that site, adherence.com. Now, let me tell you what we've got here. They break it down into eight of the, of the largest world religions, and that's what I'm going to take some time to do with you. Uh, we're going to break down each one of these major world religions. Some of them are, are, are a confluence of a whole bunch of different religions. And, and if it's okay, what I'm going to do is, since eight is, is a pretty good number, but that 4% thing that where we're going to start up at the very top is, is, is quite a few different religions, I'm going to cover maybe the top 10 world religions. I'll even mention the top 14, okay? So I'll kind of go beyond some of the, the biggest world religions that are on the planet as we seek to answer the question, uh, do all roads lead to heaven? Now, real quickly, before you, before you figure it out, some great math person in this room is going to figure out that all those numbers added up together add to more than 100%. All right, Joel, you hear me? All right, good. Uh, so, so here's what I want you to understand real quickly. Um, that the sociologists, they gave the benefit of the doubt, and every time they studied a people group that had a certain number of adherents above uh, religion above 10,000, they, they rounded up, okay? They kept rounding up. And so every, no matter what it was, they rounded up to the nearest whole numbers of people, and they grouped them all together. So all together, those people, those numbers actually add up to more than 100% because with every different religion, they rounded up. So what we're going to do together is I'm just going to dive in I, I've got a little uh, laser pointer that I'm going to use, and we're going to study, first of all, the, this little smallest window here, which represents uh, the world religions that are, that are less than 2% of the world's population, okay? Matter of fact, I'm going to cover a couple that are a little bit more than 2%, but I'm going to mention some major ones that you would think would make the chart, but they're actually less than, than 2%. So if you have your pen, let's, let's dive into number 10 first, okay? But number 10 fits in that little... That little 4% right over here, and it's called Juke. Why don't you say that out loud with me? Juke. Juke. You're going to learn what Juke is, okay? Now, you probably didn't even know Juke existed, but Juke, uh, we're going to put some stats over, up here, over here on the side. Juke is 19 million people. That's how many people. And the founder is Kim Il-sung, so you might want to write out to the side in your margin there, North Korea, okay? North Korea, Kim Il-sung, the 1950s. Juke means self-reliance. Let me kind of explain what Juke is first. Kim Il-sung was the first communist leader that took over North Korea after the Korean War, and he started something called Juke. Now, it's also known as Kim Il-sung-ism, all right? It's even after his own name. And basically, it's a blending of Marxist and communist ideas and the 19 million people that we're talking about with Juke is the population of North Korea. If you live in North Korea, there is no option for other religions. You must practice Juke, all right? You must practice Kim Il-sung-ism. Now, let me explain a little bit about what Juke is. Again, it means self-reliance. So the people of North Korea and sociologists, um, they don't describe this as a religion. It's really more of an ethic. It's really more of a way they ask their people to live. It's very secular. And the people who practice Juke do not consider religion, but sociologists look at that many people and how they practice it, and they look at it and they say, well, it's kind of a religion, okay? And so Juke is this self-reliance. Now, 
Um, there are no claims about heaven. There's no claims about God. There's no claims about the afterlife. It is a way that you're supposed to live. And um, 20, uh, 19 million, 2 point, I'm sorry, 0.22% of the earth's population practice juke, okay? 0.22%. They are the only, I'm not going to talk about religions moving forward that actually are less than 2% of our population. But let me do mention real quickly what's not represented here, all right? Because they're number 10. Number 11 that I'm not going to talk about today is Judaism, all right? Which has basically 16 million followers, okay? That's a pretty big world religion, but it has less than the population of North Korea, and it has less than, than, than Juke. Number, number 12 is what we would call spiritism, Number 13 are the Mormons. Mormons with about 6 million. And number 14 would be the Jehovah's Witness. And they have about 6 million as well. Again, these are, these are um, adherents that all fall into that little 4% mark right here on your little pie chart, okay? So these have even less than 2% of the world's population. Now finally, last thought here about Juke one more time. No claims about heaven. No claims about the afterlife. No claims about God. It is secularism and it is self-reliance. That's how you're supposed to live. And a blending of Marxist and communist ideas. By the way, the first few of these, because there are so few adherents, I'm going to move through them a little bit faster, okay? So number nine, let's cover number nine together. And if you will write this, Sikhism, Sikhism, S-I-K-H-I-S-ism, H-I-S-M, Sikhism. 23 million, chiefly in uh, Punjab, India, Sikhism. It was founded by a guy by the name of Nanak Dev. They call him Guru Nanak. In 1469, uh, the view of God is monotheistic. Now, I'll explain that more in just a minute. But it's the understanding that there is one God, and that's the, that's the view of God. And so let me tell you a little bit about that story before we dive into how you can get to God. And so Sikhism, uh, Punjab, India. Sikhism is a blending of two different other religions we're going to talk about in a few minutes. But uh, Nanak Dev was a guy who had experienced a lot of the blending of two different world religions, Islam and Hindu, all right? Now, Islam with a lot of war and violence and Hindu with its gods and goddesses that we'll talk about in a little while, Nanak Dev had experienced, a, his family had lived through a lot of violence. Um, and he disapproved of this violence. So one day while he was bathing in a stream, Nanak Dev disappeared. He didn't, nobody could find Nanak Dev. And three days, he was gone. And when he returned, he, he returned with a revelation. And his revelation was this new religion called Sikhism, with 23 million people now following. And, and basically, here's the revelation in a nutshell. There is no Muslim. There is no Hindu. He had come up with that. Neither one of those are, are the way to God. And he started his own religion, okay? And so the idea that he came up with was he took a little bit from each one, a little bit from Hindu and a little bit from Muslim. So what he took from the, the, the Hindus was this idea of reincarnation. We'll talk about that more in a few minutes. Um, and they, they came up with a, a holy book 
what he took from the Muslims that the Hindus didn't have was this idea of that there is one God, monotheism, okay? So he tried to blend the two together. He took the monotheism of, 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 of Islam. He took the, 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 um, the uh, sorry, the reincarnation of Hindu and he put it all together. Now, he believed the way to God was what was called the five Ks. I can't remember. Did we put those? Yeah, we put those up there. Uh, one, was, one was Kesh, which means long hair. Another was Kanga, and it was Kalm. Another was Kara, a metal bracelet. Kachera, short pants. And Kirpan, a sword. And he said, you lived your life by these things. Every one of them not only was something that was representative on your physical body, it was a way to live. And he also believed in reincarnation. So as you came back, if you lived a certain way, that part of the, the Hindu religion was there as well. And that was the way. By practicing the five Ks, by you doing it the right way, and by being reincarnated over and over again, one day you would make it to God. Now that's the idea of Sikhism. We'll move to number eight. Okay, now we're going to move beyond the, the four realm, and we're going to move over here to the first six, okay? First 6% right over there, okay? First 6%. This is a little bit larger. African traditional religions. By the way, there are so many different types of variants and forms of religions in Africa that sociologists have put a lot of them together because they share a lot of the same thoughts, as I'll share with you, but they're not all exactly the same. We call The sociologists have termed them African traditional religions, 100 million people in Africa and wherever Africans are enslaved still across the planet, that they've taken that religion with them, whatever that religion looks like. Sociologists, what is their, what their, what's their view of God? Animism and polytheism. So the idea here, animism is simply this. Everything is animated. Everything has life, okay? The, the rocks, the concrete, the, the steel, uh, the, the birds, the bees the trees, everything has a life force, okay? That's animism. Polytheism is that there are lots of gods that fill these things, okay? And so that's the view of a lot of the African traditional religions across that continent. Now, you would know just from living in this country and hearing a lot about what was happening in this country before we arrived here, what was going on in Mexico, you know how polytheism probably works. When there's lots and lots, lots of gods and goddesses, the question comes up, how do you appease those gods? Or how do you fall out of favor and be cursed by those gods? And, all, and the answer is always that you sacrifice to those gods. And so that's a lot of what happens in the, in the African traditional religions. You sacrifice to appease the gods. Now, a long time ago, this was done through human sacrifice. Now, today, traditionally across that continent, a lot of it is done with animal sacrifices. But please understand that this is the concept of, of this, these African traditional religions have been literally all across the planet, that a lot of things had life, and there, there was a lot of gods everywhere. As a matter of fact, let me just give you three examples. And, and now I need to talk about what these, what these folks who trying, are trying to make sacrifices to appease the gods... What, are they try what do they think is coming? How do they get to heaven, and what does heaven look like for them? And for them, heaven really is just a glorified state of kind of the way things are now. It's, it's a paradise version, gardens and the like, of, of what, what the world looks like now. And so, for example, and I'm going to leave the African traditional religions just for a second. We'll stay there with that same thought. But the Native Americans that were here on our continent, they were doing that very same thing. 
They called it, their, their dream of heaven, they called the happy hunting ground, okay? And so their vision was we would sacrifice, we would sacrifice to appease the gods in the hopes that one day when we arrived to paradise, to heaven, it would be the happy hunting grounds. It was a dream of far beyond what they had here when they were on, on this continent. For, the, the Romans did the very same thing. The Romans would sacrifice, often human sacrifices, and, and they, their, their dream was the Elysian fields. Have you heard that before? Have you heard that word, Elysian? Elysian fields, their dream of paradise was this place where it was gardens and oasis, and they, 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 they would sacrifice to the gods, and one day they would arrive at this beautiful, beautiful place. Uh, the Vikings, the Vikings, not in Africa, the Vikings had their dream of the same kind of place, and so they would sacrifice to the gods, and they called it Valhalla. Valhalla was the dream. That was, the, that was their idea of heaven one day. So if they sacrificed enough to the gods, one day they would arrive at this paradise type of place. They all had different visions of what paradise was, but they all, and they all called it by different names, but it's the same idea. You sacrifice to the gods, and if you appease them enough, one day they'll allow you to go to whatever that is, okay? Whatever paradise is for you. These are the African traditional religions. Now, I've got to go off my little pie chart here for a minute because we're really, number six, that green section is kind of divided between two because sociologists, these animists and these polytheistic, these sacrificing the gods, they used to lump them all together. And then um, about 15 years ago, they began to break them apart because they said it's not really fair that the ethnicities of Africa we're just lumping in them, them with other people around the world, just like I just mentioned all those others. So now they, 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 they compartmentalize the, Africa, the, the continent of Africa with their traditional religions, and then write this one down, it'd be number seven. Number seven is very much the same type of concept, but they call it primal indigenous religions. And these are the same type of people who practice these, the same kind of thoughts, but they're in different parts of the world. So for example, the, the primal um, indigenous religions would include shamans that, that exist in Siberia or pagans in Asia and India who are still sacrificing to appease the gods. And, and around different parts of the planet, there are other preliterate places where people are doing the same type of things. So 300 million people are still animists and still polytheists and still sacrificing the gods, but they don't live on the continent of Africa. And so they develop their own thing just for them, okay? Does that make any sense to you? Lots of different ethnicities. Sociologists don't want to lump them all together anymore. Let's move to number six. I'm going to take a little bit more time explaining each one of these, but number six would be um, 6% of the population, what we call the Chinese traditional religions, okay? 394 million people. Naturally, these are people who live in China. These are mostly Chinese people who have been raised in the religion of their ancestors. And, and there's several of these different religions in China, but they, 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 they kind of break out in the top two categories. The top category would be Lei Tzu, who started Taoism, and then, and then Confucius, who, uh, who taught Confucianism. So we'll talk about those two things kind of together because they're not vastly different. Now, what is their view of God? What is their means to God? That there is no particular deity, that, it's, that, that, that if there is a God, he is certainly some type of impersonal force that you can never come to know. That's the idea. Um, now, I must say that Lei Tzu, with Taoism, later on was venerated, so he kind of became like a god, but that was never his intention. His, his understanding, just like Confucius, was that 
that if there is a God, he's some impersonal force out there we can't know, and it's more of an understanding of the here and now. So what are the precepts of Taoism, of Confucianism, of those Chinese world, major world religions that all blend in together there? Basically, it comes down to this. How you behave determines what kind of life you will have. So if you treat people well, if you venerate your ancestors, if you take care of the elderly, you will have a good life. This is called wisdom, and this is the way to live. This is what Leitzu and, and, and Taoism teaches. This is what Confucianism teaches. So please understand, their means to God, it's not even stress. They don't even talk about a means to God because God is some force out there and you can't even really come to know it. It's more of an understanding of how you behave right now. The here and the now is what Confucianism, Taoism is all about and all the other, those religions that blend together. There's, it's more of an ethical system about how you live now. There's no talk about heaven. There's no talk about an afterlife. It's how you live right now will determine what your life is like. Now, we move forward, and we'll, we'll move to this next one because this is a big one, okay? We've been in this 6% bracket, and now this 6% bracket, now we're moving over to this one. And we move over to this red bracket here. Um, no, we, no. Yeah, no, we, we're not going to get there yet. We need to talk about Buddhism first. Buddhism, right? Buddhism. So Buddhism, we're still in this kind of 6% mark here. That's what we're talking about here. Followers, 488 million. You probably have heard the name before. Siddhartha Gautama, that is the Buddha, okay? That is the person that, that is called the Buddha. Um, his real name was Siddhartha Gautama. You see how long ago he lived? Long before Jesus, you see that, okay? Um, the view of God, not stress. So there, there was not even a really understanding about who God is in, in Buddhism. Um, 488 million. Let me tell you this story of, of this and a little bit more in depth about this major world religion. So Siddhartha Gautama, Gautama, I'm sorry, he was from the high caste in, in, the, um, in the culture of Hindu. And if you don't know anything about what that means, let me explain to you that that means he was rich, that means he, was, he had a life of leisure, and anything at the top of the, cla of the class structure he could do professionally. And um, so he lived his life basically asking, what is the meaning of life? And he had all the pleasures of life at his disposal. And what ended up happening with him is he struggled to figure out the meaning of life when his, his life became kind of boring. So he went um, off on a seclusion. He, he secluded himself away from everybody else. He found a fig tree, and he sat under the fig tree for 40 days and 40 nights. And at the end of that 40-day period, and that 40-night period, when Buddha returned back into civilization, he was enlightened. That's a very important word when it comes to Buddhism. He had been enlightened. So what, what does that enlightenment mean? Well, during that time, he discovered what he called the, the four noble truths, okay? And he talked about these and the way that you should live is according to these four noble truths. And here are the four noble truths. Suffering is universal. This is what he figured out under the fig tree. Suffering is universal. Craving is the root cause of suffering, and the cure for suffering is to eliminate craving. And then finally, 
Craving is eliminated by following an eightfold path. I hope I gave you the eightfold path. We got that up there? Eightfold path. I hope we do. Craving is eliminated by following the eightfold path, and these are, notice, all rights. All right, right, right. And I, I know I didn't leave you a lot of room to take notes, but maybe you'll find a little place in your margin. Eightfold path is right views, all right? Literally, with your eyes, looking at things the right way and having the right things that you look at, not looking upon unhealthy or bad things. Right thought, thinking the right things, filling your mind with good things. That's what the Buddha was talking about. That brings enlightenment. Right things, right thoughts. Right speech, only letting wholesome talk come out of your mouth. Right behavior, only doing good. Right effort, right occupation, right contemplation, what you let your mind dwell on. And then finally, right meditation. And there's each one of those is a kind of a strain of thought uh, that comes behind it. But the Buddha was basically saying, if you would follow these eight, uh, watch it now, if you follow these eight things, it would stop all that craving that you have in your life. And craving is what leads you to a path of suffering. And you would, you would not experience that suffering the way that, 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 uh, that the world sees it all the time, all the suffering in the world. So what's very important about Buddha, what's very important about Buddha is, is Buddha was trying to teach that if you do these things, you too can be enlightened. You too can have an enlightened path. Now again, no stress, uh, no stress view about heaven or an afterlife or what's to come. That's not about what it's about, okay? It's about how you live right now and you can be enlightened. You can have a, a greater life here and now if you follow the eightfold path. Now, let's go to the next one, because the next one, you guys have family and friends probably in this area for sure, okay? Secularism or non-religious, uh, uh, any type of theology, religions, okay? You would put agnostics in here. Anybody who, who says they're secular or they're an atheist, this is a huge bracket here, okay? A lot of different people have been put into this bracket. How many people? Um, the secular and the, non, the non-religious, one point, um, I'm sorry, nine, 900 million um, non-religious Westerns, agnostics, atheists, formerly communist countries. Um, these are people who basically say, I choose not to engage. I choose not to engage with thoughts about faith or religion. I just don't want to engage into it all. And their understandings um, about life are, that we live, and we die, and that's it. They don't have a view of God. They don't have a view of an afterlife. There is no such thing for them. They don't have a view of faith, except for that they don't believe that there is any of that, okay? And they're not going to engage and spend time thinking about it if it is not there. So when we die, we're done. Now we're going to move into the top three, okay? Now this is lots and lots of people, all right? So number three. Number three, write, uh, write down on your, on your blank, if you will, Hinduism. Hinduism. I have a dear friend that's Hindu that was uh, living in the States now, but, but was raised in India. Hinduism. 1.1 billion people, founded in 1800, 1000 B.C. Now, let me point out this. There is no founder of Hinduism. Most of these other world religions have been able to tell you about, there was somebody that started the thought, somebody that, like the Buddha, that got enlightened or... There is no founder for Hinduism, okay? But interestingly enough about Hinduism, the view of God is a pantheistic view, a pantheistic view. Now, so that means 
that in Hindu, there are three million that they label three million gods and goddesses that you must try to appease. And the reason you don't do certain things, because some of those things that are out there, like the cows that they don't eat, could be God, you, you, they could even, they could have, you, you could be eating some of those gods, and, and as you'll learn later on, you could even, even be eating some of your ancestors. So you're very careful about what you do, because there are lots and lots, three million plus gods and goddesses. Now, their means to God is called the transmigration of souls. We would call that reincarnation. So you can, you can live, and if you live well enough, you will move up, and you'll migrate up. If you don't live a very good life, you'll migrate down. And the goal is that you would appease the gods all along the way, and you would keep re- being reincarnated at different phases until one day you reach what they call moksha, which is release, okay? It's this understanding of when you reach moksha, you are released into the cosmic unconsciousness. You're you're brought into a different state of being. You you meld into the inanimate force in the universe. The understanding of Hinduism is that the, 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 the main God, the big God, if there is a big God of all that's the force of every other God and goddesses, is Brahman, okay? And Brahman is this inanimate force. Think Luke Skywalker, right? Force beyond all of us, okay? Uh, The Brahman is the force, the life force that exists way beyond us. And if I am reincarnated enough times, one day I will meld into the Brahman. I will become part of the inanimate life force that is over and through all. So let me pause here for a minute. Reincarnation. Some people even call it Karma. You ever heard that word karma? Have you even, I'm, on, I'm not going to make you raise your hands, but have, I, I bet some of us in this room have said karma. I believe in karma. I believe in karma. You, it comes around, it goes around. And we, we, now can I just tell you real quickly, I'm running away from my notes here for just a minute. Can I tell you real quickly, if you're a Christian, you don't believe in karma, okay? So I need to tell you that real quickly, because you, you, you don't believe in reincarnation, and reincarnation and karma are put right together, okay? They go hand in glove. So let me real quickly teach on that for just a second. Karma is this understanding of if you live a certain way, you will be reborn at a higher level or a lower level. It ties in with reincarnation. What you really believe if you're a Christian is you believe what the, probably what the Bible says when it talks about uh, the law of the harvest, that what you sow, you will reap. If you sow good, you'll reap bad. If you sow bad, you'll reap good. The Bible talks about the law of the harvest, and if you believe that, then, then you believe in the law of the harvest. You don't believe in karma, okay? Or you might even say that you believe in the golden rule, that uh, you're going to do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. But listen, um, karma is attached to reincarnation. So I want everybody who calls himself a harvest pointer to understand you don't believe in karma, okay? Nod your head, okay? You believe, you've been taught the law of the harvest. You've been taught the, the golden rule. You've been taught the teachings of Jesus and the teachings of the Holy Bible, which are far different from karma. By the way, let me say one last thing about karma. Let me tell you why you don't want to believe in karma. Theologians, the theologians of Hindu itself say that, you, that on an average, you would have to experience reincarnation something to the tune of 600,000 times. Some, that's the average, 600,000 times to finally experience moksha, okay? To finally be released into the cosmic inanimate Brahman, okay? 
And don't think you and me want to be doing something 600,000 lives one day getting there, okay? You don't believe in karma. All right. I don't think you do. Anyway, you can if afterwards tell me if you do. Okay. Uh, number two. Number two, okay? Number two is Islam. And boy, does this get all the press right now, right? Islam. And by the way, Islam is a very fast-growing world religion. 1.6 billion people. And it's a very fast-growing religion for two reasons. High birth rates in that culture and in that religion. Huge birth rates. Lots and lots of children being born into Islam. And then secondly, proselytizing. Sometimes even to the tune of become Islamic, take on Sharia law, or you will die, okay? So this religion is growing, and it's growing fast. 1.6 billion people. Now, the founder is Muhammad, and hopefully you know a little bit of the story, um, but let me, let me break it down. But first of all, view of God, monotheistic. So Islam, God is Allah, okay? And um, we'll talk about how Muhammad got his revelation, because Muhammad's the prophet, but before we do that, let me explain something about Islam. Islam is broken down with an understanding basically of two things. There is the house of Islam. You might want to write this down in notes somewhere. There is the house of Islam and what they call the house of war. Okay? The house of Islam and the house of war. Every, everything and everybody that wants to abide by Sharia law as, as it is given in the Quran exists under the house of Islam. So if you say you believe in Muhammad as the prophet, and if you believe in Allah, and you follow the rules of the Quran, especially as they are demonstrated in Sharia law, then you are under the house of Islam. And anything that is not Sharia law is under the house of war, okay? It is not under Islam. So the people of the house of Islam are at war with the people who have not yet accepted Sharia law. Now, Muhammad. Muhammad, here's, here's how Muhammad got his vision. Muhammad um, was uh, rebelled against polytheism. He was around a lot of culture with all the gods and goddesses and a lot of the... the, the but he was also, interestingly enough, listen, he was also around a lot of Jews and he was also around a lot of Christians. Muhammad had a chance to hear all the stories. He heard all the stories of the Jews. He heard the stories. And so Muhammad had a vision. And in his vision, he understood God to be something different than the polytheistic people or the animists, something different than the Jews, and even something different than the Christians. God was Allah. Allah. You've heard that name before. Do you know what Allah means? Write that down. Allah means submission. And so Muhammad began to share what this, uh, this understanding of a holy text, a Sharia law, and the ultimate concept of God was Allah and that we must relentlessly submit to Allah. That, that idea of submission. We must submit to Allah ruthlessly. And so Muhammad, at the base of Islam, came up with what he called the five pillars. And this is very important that you subscribe to the five pillars. This is the way you appease uh, Allah and one day you inherit heaven that Allah promises. And so the five pillars of Islam, five pillars of Islam, I want to give these to you real quickly. Oh, by the way, the view of the afterlife, is they don't really call it heaven, they call it paradise, okay? View of the afterlife is paradise. And if you do the five pillars of Islam, one day you'll get, uh, and you follow Sharia law, one day you will get to paradise. Five, uh, five pillars of Islam. 
um, the Shahada, the Salat, the Zagat, the Psalm, and then finally, the Hajj. So the Shahada, by the way, each one of these words, I meant for, in your outline, no, I meant for them to underline some words. Let me tell you what you can underline if you're taking notes. Shahada literally means the word recite. So you recite the Shahada, you recite it, okay? And by the way, here is the Shahada. There is no God but Allah. Okay, so if you recite that over and over again, you're doing the Shahada. There is no God but Allah. There is no God but Allah. There is no God but Allah. You understand the, the, the monotheism of Islam. So the first thing is you recite it over and over again, the, the Shahada. The second is the Salat, and that literally means pray, okay? Uh, There's a different language for pray. You pray five times a day facing the city of Mecca. Mecca is where Muhammad received his vision. Uh, the Zakat, you give to the poor. That word literally means give, so you might want to align that word, give. You give to the poor. The psalm, fast, literally means fast, okay? You fast during the daylight hours during the month of Ramadan, the month that Muhammad received his vision. And then finally, the hajj, which means pilgrimage. You take a pilgrimage. You would underline that word pilgrimage. You take a pilgrimage to Mecca. So Muhammad's vision was if you do these things, if you recite, if you pray, if you give, if you fast, and if you pilgrimage to the place then, and, and you follow the Sharia law, you will one day make it to paradise. Okay. Let me, can I, again, I'm just going to run away from my notes here for a minute. One of my professors, when I was in graduate school, said, we were, we were studying this, and he said, you know what, um, interestingly enough to these different things, and you can find a little bit of what we do as Christians in these things, he said, if I were to pick any one of those things, and I would say, man, I wish every Christian would do he surprised me what he said. He said, I wish that we would start, I wish that we would learn what they have learned with the Hajj, the pilgrimage. He said, because if every Christian went to the Holy Land, if every Christian during their life went to Israel and walked where Jesus walked and studied the stories of what Jesus did in the Holy Land, their life would be and their faith would be radically transformed. I never forgot that because when I went there as a young preacher right out of seminary, my very first trip right out of seminary, my preaching was transformed and my life was transformed. And I would tell you, I just want to run a real quick rabbit trail here. I would tell you, if you ever have a chance to go to the Holy Land, if you ever have a chance to make a pilgrimage back to where our faith began, please don't miss that opportunity. It is a place, it is a moment, it is an experience that is transformative. Okay. Need to leave this place, but remember paradise. I, I thought I'd real quickly, before I leave this idea of Islam and this world religion, I thought I'd real quickly explain to you what paradise looks like because um, it's not necessarily heaven, okay, what, what Christians call heaven. So I thought I'd share a couple of, um, recite a couple of lines from the Quran and that you'd be able to kind of hear the vision of paradise, okay? So I'm going to do that real quickly. Um, so here, here's from Quran chapter 55. And by the way, this is pretty much for men. Women are not really addressed in that culture, okay? So therein are bashful... Here's paradise, by the way, for all of us, especially men. Uh, therein are bashful virgins, whom neither man nor, nor jinni, that's kind of like um, beings that are between humans and, and Allah, like angels. That's what jinnis are. There, there are. therein are ba paradise. Therein are bashful virgins, whom neither man nor jinni have touched before virgins as fair as coral and rubies. That's their idea of paradise. Here's another idea of paradise that comes from the surah. And, and if you get to paradise, if you do the, the five um, steps of, of, the, uh, of the five pillars of Islam and follow Sharia law, 
They shall recline on jeweled couches face to face, and there shall wait on them immortal youths with bowls and ewers and a cup of purest wine that will neither pain their heads nor take away their reason with fruits of their own choice and flesh of fowls that they will relish. And theirs shall be the dark-eyed iris, that's virgins, uh, chased as hidden pearls, a guerdon, that's a reward for their deeds. So it's a pretty good vision for men, okay? Uh, Women aren't really told much about paradise unless you happen to be one of those um, dark-eyed virgins uh, chased as hidden pearls, all right? That's the vision of paradise. Now let's talk about the last one and the largest world religion on the planet, and that's Christianity. Christianity, uh, 2.2 billion followers on the planet. Um, Founder, Jesus Christ. The view of God is a monotheistic view. There is one God. Means to God an idea of atonement and substitution. So let me just real quickly cover Jesus for a minute. Jesus was different than the other ones because He came and He said that He was God. Muhammad never said that. Buddha, the Buddha never said that. None of these other people said they were God. Jesus actually came in the flesh, and he said he was God in the flesh. And then what is told are these stories, these these miracle stories, these fulfillments of prophecy. And then later on in his life, he would die. That's where the atonement comes from. He would die for the sins of his people, and he he was resurrected. So this is the story of Jesus. Death then resurrection. And the means to God is by experiencing and the covering, the atonement, the covering over of the sin through the death and the resurrection of Jesus. The blood of Christ would cover the darkness and the stain and the sin of humanity. The view of the afterlife is what what is called heaven. And, And this is the idea mainly of a presence with God. Uh, There are a lot of other things, uh, streets of gold and pearl and gates of pearl and and city streets and rivers like jewels and all that kind of stuff. But the idea is that the God of the universe would be present with his people and he would have saved them. Um, And by the way, Jesus came kind of teaching this triune nature of God, that there was God the Father, that there was God the Son, and that God his Holy Spirit was present. And that when he went away after his resurrection, he sent his Holy Spirit into his followers so that His Spirit, the Spirit of God, would dwell in His followers as a seal for the redemption that would happen at the end of their lives in heaven. This is the story of Jesus. Now, a couple of scriptures that kind of lay out some of those understandings of of substitution and atonement, I thought I'd share some of those with you. So 1 Peter 3.18, this is the view um, of, of what it would look like. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Jesus was a righteously perfect person, but he suffered for the unrighteous to bring them to God. And then in Revelation 21.4, this is the vision of heaven, that he would wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. And the old order of things, that's everything that was before, had passed away, and heaven, presence, eternal life had begun. Wow, we've covered a lot, haven't we? <laughs> we went through a lot together. Now, I'm going to drive back to our question together for a minute. Here's the question. Do all roads lead to heaven? Will God just save everybody? 
Now, just a few observations, and I don't think I have these in your outline, so I'm going to put them up on the screen here. Um, just a few observations from that huge world tour that we just took. First one is this. Every religion claims to be the only way to God. For those who do even talk about God, when they talk about God, they claim their way is the way. They don't say it's somebody else or somewhere else. They believe their way is the way. Second observation is every religion has a different roadmap. For one, it's the eightfold path. For another, it's the five pillars. For another, it's the five Ks. For another, it's sacrificing to appease the gods. All these, every, every religion has a different roadmap. The next one, almost all their ideas of the afterlife and what heaven will look like are radically different. Even if they do have an idea of the afterlife or heaven, which many of them do not, it's about this life. And then final, final observation. These religions represent 98% of all of humanity. So probably the right choice is among these choices. When we're asking the question, do all roads lead to heaven? How do you get to heaven? What is the way to God? The big question that many people ask would a loving God let sincere people miss heaven? If God is so loving, won't he just bring people in? Now, let me just, I'm going to leave that question there for a minute. Would a loving God let sincere, good-hearted, authentically trying to do the best thing, let sincere people miss heaven? Let me answer that question real quickly a few different ways. Here's the first way I'd answer that question if somebody asked me. I would ask a question in return. Would a loving God let sincere... Here's my question. Would a loving God whisper a different way to all kinds of different places across the earth and tell them, no, here's the way. No, this is the way. Would a loving God keep on whispering different ways all over the world to different kinds of people that look so different and tell them that's the way? Is that really what a loving God would do? Or would a loving God tell them the way? Tell them the way to heaven. Show them the way to heaven. The second way that I would answer that question, and remember, I'm a Christian and I'm also a pastor, is when I look at all those 98% of all those different major world religions, I have to ask myself, which one of them is the most logically, the most logic response to a loving God? I want you to think that way. Which of those ways, which of those paths is the most logical response of a loving God? And it seems to me that last one that talked about God coming and dying for those that he loved so that he could redeem them seems like the most logical path of a loving God. But then finally, another way that I would answer that question is out of all those religions, the, different, the difference in Christianity is that every one of those other religions, it was about what the person had to do. The person had to make sacrifices. The person had to do the pilgrimage. The person had to follow the five pillars. The person had to do the five Ks. The person had to do the eightfold path. It was all about what the people did, no matter what they did. By the way, even for the atheists, even if they didn't engage, it was about what they did. But in Christianity, it's the only one that is about what God does and not about what we do. It was about what God did for us. And Christianity boasts this thing called grace, which says it ain't about you. It's about God loving you and doing for you, making a way for you 
to finally be able to come to heaven and approach him. Real quickly, I told you I was going to answer three of your questions, right? And I've only answered one. I want to answer two more. Somebody dropped in our little bucket in the back this question. Some universalists say the judgment will not occur. When we die, God will just forgive us all. And we will all go to heaven. Thoughts? <laughs> well, I hope they were asking for my thoughts, because I'm the one answering the question, okay? So, so let me just share a few thoughts that I have with whoever answered that question. You know, when I first read that question, I just, I just want to share with you the first thought that came across my mind. And that was, whoo, just hoping for the best, right? If that's really what you're thinking, maybe we'll just all be able to go to heaven. And there won't really be a judgment. But have you ever noticed that wishful thinking? That's what came to mind. That's kind of wishful thinking. Have you ever noticed that that's a little bit of humanity, but it's kind of the immature side of humanity? Do you ever remember that you ever, remember doing wrong and you hoped somebody wasn't going to punish you? Do you ever remember... Uh, studying and, and, and learning stuff, and then you hope there wasn't going to be a test. Do you remember that, by the way? Oh, Lordy, we were all there, right? Boy, maybe they would say this week that we're just not going to have a test, right? Do you remember thinking that? I think part of the human condition, according to the Bible at least, says we've all sinned and fallen short. Part of our human condition is that we've done wrong, and nobody who ever does wrong wants to think that there might be a consequence. Nobody who ever does wrong wants to think that there might be a punishment. Nobody who ever does wrong wants to think that they one, might, one day might stand in front of a, a judge and have to go to jail for their actions, you know? So I would say to the people who are in that place, I think it might be wishful thinking. And I wouldn't put my eternity on that hope. Maybe all of us will go. I think I'd look at humanity and say, hmm, I think I've had that thought before and it didn't work out quite right. There was a punishment. There was a consequence. There was a test. This is the way life works. Here's another question that somebody asking. And you know what? Let me, let me be frank with you. This question does not fit with what I've been teaching today. I put this question on the screen because there's one person, I never do this, but there's one person in our crowd that I wanted to ask this question for today who I know is hurting tremendously because of a loss in their life. Somebody, I don't know who it was, throw in this question. Sometimes I feel like God isn't there when I need Him most. Everything bad has been happening. Is He there? Somebody asked that question. And can I just tell you, that that's, a, that's a big God question, isn't it? I think every human's probably had that God question. You know, it's such a big God question for me that I wrote my graduate thesis on that. Theologians call that experience when just life is so tough and it feels like God is so far away. You ever had that happen to you before? You ever prayed the prayer and it felt like it hit the concrete and came right back down and God wasn't there? You ever been there? That's all of us, okay? Theologians have termed something, that experience called the dark night of the soul. That moment when we feel so far away from God and it just seems like bad things happen to us. And I'll talk more about this in the coming weeks when we talk about evil and suffering. But I just want to real quickly say that is a human experience. And the question is, is he there? Can I just point to Christianity for a minute? Because I'm going to invite you this morning to trust Christianity as the way to heaven, okay? I want to point to the book for a minute. Do you know what this book says? This book gives some great promises that go right in line with that question. 
there are going to be moments where you hurt, where it seems like everything's going wrong and bad in your life, and it will feel like God is forever away from you. But do you know what the Bible tells us? That He will never leave us nor forsake us. That He is with us. Jesus' last words, remember what He said? He said, lo, I am with you till the end of the age. He was sending His Holy Spirit to dwell within us. And listen, I know what it's like to pray that prayer and have it come right back down and feel like God was so far away. But you know what I realized when I was writing that thesis and I was studying about God in that dark night of the soul? I was studying about you know, Jews in concentration camps, feeling like God was so far away. Where are you, God, in the middle of their suffering? I came to Jesus in the garden. You know, there was even a moment for Jesus where he felt like, he felt like his prayers were hitting the ceiling, you know? There was a moment for Jesus. Remember on the cross when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That was the dark night of Jesus' soul. So it's a very human thing to say, man, it, sometimes it feels like God isn't there. But see, what Christianity teaches is that God is not everywhere. He's not in all the inanimate objects. He's not, he's not in a million, three million gods and goddesses. And it also doesn't teach that he is all about submission and following certain pillars or certain fold paths. You know what the Bible teaches God is? is actually one of the names that Jesus was given when he was born. That God is Emmanuel. God with us. God with us. And Jesus came to teach us that path. I would say to the person who asked that question, is he there? There will be some moments where it just feels like you're all alone. But can I tell you that in that moment, He's there? The Father and the Spirit never left the Son, though He felt very much distance when He hung on that cross. He is there for us. I wonder about you. I wonder where you stand. You know, it's a big God question. What is heaven? How do you get to God? What's the right path? Here at this church, we believe that Jesus came, and when he said those words, he meant those words. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And now here's the good news for the day. Christianity at its basis form, at its root form, you know what it is? It's a gift. Every one of those other places was just a, a thing you were working towards. You had to work, work, work. Many of them didn't even know whether it was a heaven or, or what it was. But you know what the Bible says? Salvation is a gift. Matter of fact, I put my outline today on John chapter 112 that says these words. Don't have it in your outline, but listen to these words. Yet to all that received him, see that image of a gift? To all that received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. When I was 11 years old, I received that gift. It wasn't on anything that I was ever going to do because Lord knows I was a messed up little boy. But can I tell you that, that I've been walking and talking with Jesus ever since? He's impacted my life and he's impacted many of the people's lives in this place today. If you want to receive Christ today, I tell people all the time, it's simple. Children do it. All you have to do is receive the gift of Jesus into your life. And he will give you eternal life. Would you pray with me? I thank you, God, for this time that we have to ask some big God questions. 
And I thank you that when we go through struggles and sometimes when you seem even so far away, that you never leave us or forsake us. And I thank you that according to your word, the word tells us that you are Emmanuel, God with us, and you are here in this place right now. And we believe we've been listening to your word. We believe that you came to die for us and to cover over our sin. And today, for that person who would pray this prayer with me, I just pray a simple prayer. In the best way I know, Jesus, I offer my heart to you. I receive you into my life as a gift. Would you come inside of me? I don't think the right thoughts. I don't say the right things. I I do things wrong all the time. I need you to come inside of me and to start living your life through me. Would you be born in me today? I believe. I have faith. And the Bible said to all those who believed in your name, they would be called the children of God. Today, I believe and I receive you, Jesus, into my life. I thank you for eternal life. I pray this in the strong and mighty name of my Savior, my Savior, Christ Jesus. Amen. Hey, church. Thank you for letting me journey in these God questions with you. We're going to take offering, and we're going to, this crew is going to lead us in worship. Our hope is that when you drive off this campus today, you're going to have a song in your heart, okay? So give to God and give generously, and then let's worship together.